On today's episode, I talk with Garen Hay. Garen Hay holds an MFA in poetry from Mills College and is currently a PhD student in English literature at UC Davis. He studies interactions between modern and contemporary poetry, environmentalism, eco-philosophy, social movements, and myth or sacred traditions. On this episode, Garen and I talk about the field of environmental humanities, which we both work in, and how this field allows for the navigation of environmental issues and questions in junction with, but also apart from the sciences. We also talk about the origins of this podcast series and why it is important to think through environmental crises like coastal erosion through a multidisciplinary approach. So hello, Garen. Um, This is our first episode for this Coastal Erosion podcast, and you are here to be my co-host for this first episode so we can kind of just talk about like what brought this podcast about, um, what it's about, sort of the Belinsky funding and how I sort of imagine this podcast and to just kind of have those general conversations before, you know, we jump into some later interview uh, podcast episodes. So thank you for being with me today and for joining me for this introductory episode. Yeah, I'm really excited to be talking with you, Allie. Um, And yeah, I think that this podcast is really exciting idea. And I'm excited to kind of open open this up with you for your listeners. Yeah, thank you. So we are here to kind of talk about just, you know, my research, what brought me to this, and also the field that we both work in, which is environmental humanities. So a lot of this podcast series is drawing on a lot of different disciplines and fields, so you and I work in uh, English literature, but also this kind of interdisciplinary field of environmental ha- humanities, which we'll talk about at the end. But I thought it would be interesting to have this conversation with you about this work because we both kind of swim in those waters of interdisciplinarity. So that can feel kind of uncomfortable, I think, from, you know, approaching from a single discipline at times. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, and I'm excited to get into this, this topic. I think that, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks will be probably more familiar with um, sort of discourse from environmental scientists of mm-hmm. various kinds. And um, I think there's a really rich um, body of different kinds vastly different kinds of work um, in the humanities on environmental issues and um, and then specifically thinking about oceans, coasts. Um, there's so much, so much thought happening there. And um, yeah, I think that there's a lot, a lot of us to uh, chew on. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah. And so first, um, before we get into that, I thought it, yeah, might be nice to talk a little bit about you and your your past and what kind of brought you here. So um, maybe um, talk a little bit about your your own past relationship to the sea, 
I know you um, have sailed, um, you've had some kind of formative experiences in Maine. Um, ground us a bit um, in kind of what brought you to focus on the sea and then what, um, what how did you become a, a scholar in um, this field? What brought you to UC Davis specifically um, as your expression of your um, love with the sea? Yes, definitely. That's a fantastic question. Um, so as you mentioned, I have a deep connection to the coast of Maine. Uh, I grew up in Boston, in the, the city of Boston, so not quite on the harbor front or the ocean front. And actually a lot of my experience with like bodies of water was the little ponds like Jamaica Pond or the little, you know, lakes or rivers in the city, which made me just absolutely love being on the water and also even just things like swimming. And, you know, when I was little, we used to go to these lakes where you could swim and there were little beaches and I just loved being in the water always. And then my grandma lived in Maine and so as I got a little older, I used to go and spend the summers with her in Maine. Um, and that's when I really just started to love being by the ocean. And I think it was something that just felt so natural to me and didn't seem like that, you know, interesting or unique. It was just kind of, I was used to spending the entire summer just submerged or playing in the water or looking at tidal pools and the rest of the year kind of playing in water and never really thought about it as, you know, this unique experience that then you later grow up and you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, not all cities are on right on the ocean front. Um, so I feel like it just felt very natural to me. And also part of that and part of my love of being in Maine in the summers was that my family used to read the kind of local children's books to me that were about the area that you were in. So in Maine, there's blueberries for Sal. Um, there's the Island Boy is a very well-known uh, children's book. And so I just got used to kind of being near the water or the ocean and also thinking about it in terms of the stories that were being told about it. So going to a little island and looking at the tidal pools and kind of reading this children's book about a boy back in the 19th century who lived on an island in Maine and, you know, met a seagull who was his friend and just felt really connected to it through the literature as much as being there. Um, but again, I think I never really thought about that until <laughs> later, until I was in college uh, in Tennessee, where it's incredibly landlocked. And I was still kind of doing those water activities, but felt kind of disconnected from that or um, just missed it a lot. And uh, later in my college years, I took a class with a professor, an English professor who was doing work in what's now the Blue Humanities, but back then it was just kind of like a, a current in uh, certain areas of study. So 
he was working in sort of ocean things. And I remember he gave me a book and was like, this is oceanic studies. Here's a scholar working in it. It's a new field. And I was like, I, you can do that for your life. <laughs> like, this is a thing that you can study is books about the sea or the ocean. So yeah, I think once I realized that it was actually a possibility and a thing that you could do, um, I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to do this. I have to sit and think about the ocean forever and I'm bad at science. So <laughs> I'm going to do it through this. Um, and in terms of UC Davis, I mean, Davis just had the most exciting environmental program I visited. And I just loved every person I talked to and how committed they were to environmental issues. And coming from the East Coast, I thought it was very close to the water, which once you move out to California, you realize that <laughs> even though it seems close, it is a bit of a drive. But the nice thing is that Davis has kind of given me these opportunities like this fellowship in this podcast where I did get to go spend some time out on the water and really connect to the sciences and people working on oceans, not just through the humanities, but a ton of different disciplines. So that's kind of my trajectory. <laughs> yeah, I love I love learning about um, your connection with local children's literature in Maine. I didn't know about that before. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think that's probably true for a lot of us that we get drawn into literature through children's books. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody should take those for granted. Um, and yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, and that's a great segue to um, to talking about the Bodega Marine Laboratory. And, and um, yeah, talk to us a little bit about how this podcast um, germinated as an idea for you, what you imagine this podcast as and how it came to be through your fellowship. Um, some of the conversations you plan to cover, the, the types of folks you'll be interviewing, um, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the fellowship was actually uh, something that I didn't really hear about until a few months before I applied to it. And, you know, it was kind of mentioned to me through people in my department who had talked to the Bodega Marine Lab um, the people who are working out there and they really wanted humanities students to get involved with this fellowship because, you know, a lot of different fields are going much more interdisciplinary. And also, I think, as I said, Davis is a place that is very committed to approaching environmental questions through a lot of different disciplines and fields. And so I think that you know, the humanities and the, our English department is very committed to kind of connecting with other departments, but also, you know, the Coastal and Marine Sciences Institute at Davis was really interested and excited about getting humanities uh, students to also participate and add something to the scientific work that was being done and had a lot of science students um, or more science students who were doing kind of interdisciplinary work from the other angle. So uh, I'll talk about the kind of coastal erosion aspect of my project, but I was kind of approaching it as 
I want context for this. Like, I want to know what actually is happening, how people are approaching it, how practitioners are actually dealing with this thing. And uh, a lot of the students who are doing this Belinsky Fellowship from the sciences were reaching across to the humanities in really interesting and amazing ways. So doing their kind of on the ground field work, laboratory work out at the Marine Sciences Institute, and then creating you know, artwork or a children's book. Like we said, children's books are so important. And, you know, someone who has the Belinsky Fellowship right now is creating a children's book from their research uh, that they conducted out at Bodega Marine Lab. So I think we're all kind of committed to this same thing, um, but just approaching it from different ways or different angles. And I think that the the people leading the marine lab are really interested and excited about continuing that and having that be the direction that uh, especially environmental scholarship goes in because I think we all kind of realize and are committed to how you know complex or multifaceted it is and needs a lot of different people thinking about it in different or similar ways. And so in terms of the actual podcast, I think for me, I was fascinated in trying to kind of break down those approaches that I was talking about. So really trying to hone in on a single issue and see how multiple people were thinking about that single issue. And so for me, that was coastal erosion because uh, just thinking about the different um, sort of threats to our oceans and to coastal spaces. Uh, I've the last few years just been thinking a lot about coastal erosion because I think it's going to be one of the predominant things that we have to think about in the next few years, especially. And also because, like I said, my, my interaction with the ocean or with watery spaces when I was younger wasn't necessarily out to sea or wasn't through these kind of deep sea connections. It was through the coast and it was through, you know, staying with my grandmother in this kind of coastal home and thinking about how that interaction with the ocean um, could be disrupted or affected by something like coastal erosion. Even thinking about, you know, where she is in Maine they're all having to plan now about if the tides get higher and if there is coastal erosion and if there is a stronger storm, then those kind of natural barriers that have built up for hundreds of years, and we even have paintings up from people drawing the area a hundred years ago, don't really exist anymore. And so I think I, just really wanted to see how people were thinking about this because you have your own perspective and you have your own disciplinary approach, but someone else might be thinking about it very differently. And so for the Coastal Erosion podcast, I really wanted to do individual interviews um, with different people in different fields or even not necessarily through academic or scholarly fields, but just who interacted with these spaces or saw something like coastal erosion happening. So the podcast for the next few episodes is those kind of individual 
interviews. So interviewing an environmental historian about how they think about coastal erosion, or I have an interview with an earth scientist who thinks about coastal erosion. So my hope is that not only do I get to learn through these interviews and these different approaches, but that people who are similarly interested in or concerned about this environmental issue um, can have one place where they can hear a lot of those different perspectives and approaches and kind of build a picture from that of what's happening and how people are trying to deal with it. Great, yeah, and I think, um... Yeah, a lot of people are probably, you know, vaguely aware that climate change is mm -hmm. creating rising sea levels and that's going to be, probably, you know, impacting erosion on the coasts. And then, you know, people hear about that too through, um, you know, when it affects humans, basically. Mm -hmm. So like Highway 1 collapsing into the ocean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, something that brings it on people's minds. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people thinking about um, the variety of facets of um, the impact of coastal erosions. And um, yeah, it seems like um, it's going to be a really, really interesting podcast for your listeners. Yeah, and it's it's interesting with something like Highway 1 where... I think in California, why I was so interested in California's coastal erosion is that it is somewhere where we're seeing the immediate fallout of coastal erosion, like quite spectacularly. <laughs> so something like the fallout of, you know, US-1 is you just see this crumbled area of the highway. Um, but also that it is so complex even approaching something like that fallout of us one because you have you know how is caltrans going to think about it how are the communities nearby going to think about it us one is a super well traveled destination spot for tourists so it's you have all of these kind of complex interactions coming together um and i think california we're going to have to just think about coastal erosion immediately for quite some time as it's going to continue to just get worse probably great so let's um let's zoom out and orient the listener a little bit in this field that we've mentioned the environmental humanities so um yeah maybe what are the environmental humanities how are they in different than um, environmental science or mm -hmm. the kind of work that like a geologist or a climate scientist might be doing. Um, what is a human, how is a humanities scholar going to be approaching um, issues of environmentalism and, and the environment as such um, that's um, um, unique to the humanities as fields? And then actually maybe just um, we should also orient the reader that when we're talking about humanities, we're talking about um, certain disciplines as, as well and talk about what that is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you and I both work in environmental humanities. So I think that we are kind of in this moment where um, this kind of scholarship is becoming very popular because of how immediate the climate crisis is. And I think that maybe 20 years ago, environmental humanities was something that was very different. It was, you know, people from different disciplines approaching environmental or 
questions of nature and environment and human interactions with nature and environment, or also just, you know, the non-human um, and how that, how nature kind of exists. And I think now, um, so a lot of people were approaching that from dis different disciplines, as you were saying, like environmental history um, was kind of starting or becoming very big in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, in our field in English and study of what's called eco-criticism, uh, that kind of also started in the 90s and early 2000s. And that was really interested in looking at literary representations of the natural world and what that can tell us about how we think about or interact with the natural world or the environment, or even how humans construct, define, or change that natural environment. Um, and kind of just really digging into something that, you know, it's easy to think or take for granted, but also is much more complex than, than it might immediately seem. You know, that it's easy to just say there is this natural or nature out there. And I think that people in our field are really interested in the ways in which you know, there are a lot of different relationships with and interactions with and constructs of the natural world. And so I think now we have this, this field of environmental humanities, which feels much more encompassing. And I think it, it I mean, you can also, you know, add in because you know this field very well also, but I kind of feel like it needed to expand because so many people were getting so interested in this topic and approaching it from so many different uh, places. So, you know, sociology, the social sciences, uh, history, literature, um, and this kind of, you know, what we call the humanities that isn't dealing with the actual scientific processes of the natural world, but also how we interpret or engage with that natural world. Um, but what's exciting is that, you know, we have this broad field of environmental humanities, but also, as I said, it allows for a lot of room to move um, in a lot of different areas and to kind of engage a lot of different, uh, what we call kind of archives. So, you know, as we know, we usually work from a literary archive. We draw our evidence or our support or our information from literary texts usually, or, you know, a similar kind of um, object. Whereas, you know, other disciplines might be drawing their evidence or their information from say observation or things like that. But now with issues like coastal erosion or other huge environmental climate issues, we're realizing that there have to be multiple ways in which you are considering the issue because they're so complex. And so, you know, for something like sea level rise, you know, how are you going to talk about sea level rise and the way people are experiencing it or representing it? or writing about it or thinking about it without also including what's happening, why is sea level rising, 
what is the data on sea level rise? Who's thinking about it? Who's approaching it? It just seems kind of impossible to separate those questions now. Definitely, yeah, I think um, those are super important um, things to bring together. And I think, yeah, environmental humanities is so exciting and, um, yeah, and that we as literary scholars um, are not, you know, isolated from the other environmental humanities work mm -hmm. out there. I find myself constantly looking to um, philosophy of mm -hmm. environmental issues, geogra geographers, um, anthropologists, um, and but you know, there's so much, so much out there too um, beyond that and you know, film studies, art histories, um, sociology, um, so much, so much more. Um, and yeah, and I think like maybe, maybe something that I would mention for the reader too is that um, something that really draws me to this field too is thinking about um, the language that we use, especially mm -hmm. as a literary scholar. Um, and so environmental um, humanities, especially in kind of, English philosophy, um, cultural studies, um, really does some great work in thinking about the language that we're using when we're talking about the environment, mm -hmm. such as you know the concept of of nature that mm -hmm. um, it can be so easy to take for granted. You know what is what is this concept of of nature? Are humans separate from it or a part of it? Um, and you know how how the natural world, the environment, gets kind of um, lumped into the nature as you know um, the kind of scientific concept. Scientists study nature and natural law, and so there's so much in that word. There's a lot of great work that um, environmental humanities scholars have done to critique important concepts that we use, such as such as wilderness, mm -hmm. and um, you know how does this concept of wilderness shape um, the relationship we see between nature and society. Um, and then, so there's that important work of, of critique of the kind of common sense language that we're using, but also um, really wonderful, rich um, conceptual invention that goes on in the environmental humanities. You know, um, I think of, you know, things that connect with, with your work, um, such as, um, Margaret Cohen's hydrophagia, which mm -hmm. seems important to things that you're thinking about, and um, Estrida Naimanis's um, hydro commons, thinking about water as um, something that um, connects us all. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, there's 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 kind of so much more that I could go into, but um, you know how we think on the level of water. You know how we think about water is super important. Um, you know, Jamie Linton has talked about how the idea of, of water as H2O, as mm -hmm. this kind of substance that um, exists in the same way in all of these different contexts is a fairly new idea. And if you kind of look at different traditions, especially kind of indigenous traditions and how they think about water, um, you're going to see um, yeah, different sort of life ways coming out of that. You know, I think that was um, nicely exemplified and the uh, water is life um, connected to the, yeah. the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. Um, 
And yeah, water is just not this, you know, completely manipulable resource, but is actually connected deeply to specific um, survival of indigenous communities, lifeways, and um, of course, other communities across the, the planet. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love it. You're talking about this kind of way, the ways in which we talk about these issues mattering just as much as the issue itself. So, you know, as sort of some of the interviews will talk about, one of the main approaches to coastal erosion is this idea of managed retreat. And I think that that's, that's been, a, that's received a bit of pushback, I think, from a lot of coastal communities, because just the phrasing of retreat um people are very resistant to that which makes sense but you know in order to address this part of what is going to come into play is how we talk about it and how we think about it um just as much as the actual kind of plans that different policymakers and things like that come up with and i think yeah like you were saying it's it can be as simple as that it could also be you know, what does erosion even mean? What does coastal erosion even mean? When we say that, we could be talking about a cliff coastline. We could be talking about a beach coastline, a sandy coastline, and even just the ways that people define those two types of erosion are going to affect the way that people um, think about you know, I don't know, protecting against erosion. So something like a sandy beach is going to be thinking about beach nourishment as a solution. And that's going to be tied up in that area's idea of, and also connection to that beach and how they think about that beach. You know, I talked to an environmental historian later in this series about LA and the way that LA defines its beaches and wraps that up so much in the LA identity. And so, yeah, I think that, like you said, we can just kind of assume these phrases make sense or that they mean one thing, something like nature or even something like just coastal erosion when sometimes we need to put pressure on those terms that we just assume in order to actually get at the heart of what's going on. Yeah, and I love that you brought attention to the specificity of certain beaches. That makes me think too of, you know, we, it's so easy to kind of think of going to the beach as entering this natural space, but then you also think about the amount of work that certain communities do to maintain their beaches, bringing in sand, manicuring their sand, um, and intimately connected with these issues of erosion and how, um, the ways that certain communities have um, kind of defined themselves, especially in relation to the, the kind of tourism industry mm -hmm. affects um, the, their practices to uh, with the um, coastline. Um, excellent. Okay, so let's, um, as we're moving more into water and coastlines, let's talk a little bit about the blue humanities as part of um, environmental humanities. So 
you know, even Blue Humanities is a big field, but maybe give us a picture of um, the Blue Humanities as you're um, getting deeper into it, the kind of conversations that you are um, looking to be a part of, the type of work that's happening in the field, um, and basically just kind of why is it important to think with waters uh, specifically? Yeah, absolutely. Um... So as you said, blue humanities is kind of a wide field at this point, and also it's still being defined, I would say, because it is kind of an offshoot of the environmental humanities. A lot of people have been working on just at its absolute fundamental level, water <laughs> and how we interact with water uh, for many years. And now it's getting kind of grouped under these larger umbrellas that kind of think about that group of scholarship. So we have something like blue humanities. Um, and also we have other fields like critical ocean studies, which is similarly drawing on work that is connecting to water, but also thinking about how a lot of the, the what we call theorizing or kind of conceptualizing of interactions with the ocean or oceanic spaces um, came about much earlier than we like to think about in terms of uh, some of these other kind of veins of scholarship. So, you know, a lot of Caribbean authors and poets and artists were already thinking about these oceanic spaces and our connection to them um, even in the 20th century or earlier. And so I think a lot of the what the fields that I kind of generally work in has been doing in recent years is this kind of expanding um, and different offshoots. So, you know, you talked about Estrada Neymanes, who's thinking about bodies of water and how uh, bodies are 70% water. And yet we think of them as, you know, these kind of contained um, I don't want to say vessels, but, you know, the way that we think about bodies is not as these kind of watery um, subjects and thinking about what happens when bodies interact with then, say, the ocean or swimming or submersion. And so a lot of different scholars are thinking about swimming and submersion now. Um, and then some of the kind of earlier scholarship was thinking about even just the way that the ocean has played into, you know, art, what we think of as the contemporary world. So commerce, you know, how did ships move across space, uh, the space of the sea? How did people think about the space of the sea as ships started moving across that space? Who were the people laboring at sea on those ships? how did that kind of construct the world system as we know it? You know, a lot of that hydrophagia you were talking about, that forgetting of the sea that we see in, LOL, in the early 20th century um, comes from a theor uh, photographer theorist, Alan Sakula, who really was interested in the way our contemporary world has forgotten the sea as a space of commerce where container ships are constantly moving through this space and 
you know, even major cities like LA and Oakland have these container port centers. And yet a lot of cities kind of partition that off and hide it from public view, or people have forgotten that that huge part of world commerce is even happening if they're not actually working within that industry. And so he's really interested in how we've kind of forgotten how commodities, how goods, the things we buy actually move through the space of the sea to get to where we are. Um, and so I think what's exciting about blue humanities and oceanic studies and critical ocean studies and the many different terms is that people are thinking about water and our interactions with water and also you know, the very unfamiliar non-human parts of the sea that we still don't know that much about um, and how we think about that or the existence of those spaces. Um, and so it's, again, that kind of similar, I don't know, founding or central uh, interest that's being thought of in so many different ways. And that's really exciting. And so for me, in terms of how I kind of see myself in these conversations or these fields, I'm still figuring out as we always do continue to figure out. Um, but I think I, again, just kind of return to that, that way in which I learned about the ocean and thought about the ocean and came to understand the ocean through a coastal setting and how much that defined for me what the sea was. Um, and I think a lot of different scholars are similarly approaching it from personal experience or from the way that they think about this space. And I think a really important part of re recent work in this field has been kind of moving away from this Euro-American concept of land versus sea um, and trying to really think about, you know, we like to define this space through, uh, yeah, like beaches or ports or things like that, that, or out to sea that kind of separate the two and trying to really put pressure on that and think about, you know, a lot of indigenous epistemologies never really saw a separation of land and sea. Like this was very much a construct that arose from capitalism and industrial capitalism and militarization later. And I think something that's been really exciting recently has been so many works that are really pushing back on that construct that we can easily fall into uh, assuming again, you know, something even like marine protected areas in Hawaii is a militarized and settler concept that displaced a lot of communities in order to protect that marine area. And so I think it's a lot of important work has been done recently um, and for a long time also in a lot of activist communities and different areas. Um, and even trying to put pressure on how we as scholars are thinking about and defining our interactions with the ocean because you know, me approaching it from the coast of Maine is going to be very different as someone who, you know, is coming to this place from a settler descent versus, you know, the communities that 
live there and do live there and have cared for this space for a very long time and yet have been kind of pushed out or pushed to the margins by, I don't know, our country and the states. Um, even, yeah, something like Cape Cod, I think last year um, was trying to incorporate uh um, I think it was a certain uh, island um, through back channels and trying to open it up to property development of an indigenous community. And it's like, that's still happening to this day. And, you know, a lot of the people I work on, the authors I work on are approaching Cape Cod through a kind of tourist fantasy and thinking about the ocean in that way. And it's hard to kind of disentangle, I think, these lines that that really shape the way that we think about these spaces great yeah thank you so much for opening up the that field a bit for briefly for <laughs> our our listener um and yeah there's so much there that we could continue to talk about i mean one thing that you know struck me even just with that you know that statistic that we all here that our bodies are made of yeah, 70, 75 something percent water. Um, and just how that contrasts with the kind of Judeo-Christian tradition mm -hmm. of Adam being made from clay and yeah. you know maybe betrays this kind of earth-centered bias um, mm -hmm. in our cultural imaginary. Um, and yeah, and then how different you know forms of mediation shape our relationship mm -hmm. to the to the sea, to the coast, to however we want to talk about it, and just thinking about, yeah, um, the kind of literature that you're looking at and how a lot of that was embedded in these kind of smaller scale maritime economies and mm -hmm. fishermen communities and, you know, the types of ways that we were able to kind of think about or witness the sea versus something like blue planet now and these kind of documentaries that take us deep into this alien world which mm -hmm. you know has is incredible for opening up the non-human in this way that we would most people would never get to see in person but at the same time can create this um you know image of this you know pristine um place where there is all this rich life um, that is not, you know, deeply connected to human life ways mm -hmm. or that is um, actually also kind of glossing over the kind of vast um, empty spaces, the kind of deserts of mm -hmm. within the ocean where there isn't this kind of teeming life. So it can create, has, it has this mode of representation has its problems as well. But let's move a little more into um, literature specifically and your area of study. So um, I know we don't want to go on for um, a whole lot longer, mm -hmm. um, but I do want to touch on, you know, what is a kind of rough timeline of your period of study and some of the kind of main historical, geographic, socioeconomic changes that um, are affecting coasts at that time. Um, and then maybe also talk a bit about the different literary representations of coast erosion um, during that time. And, um, you know, what, what does the literature open us, open up for us? Um, and how, if, if you've tracked this at this time, you know, how 
Um, does the literature change in confluence with those historical mm -hmm. changes or in um, and a, a kind of push back against them. Mm -hmm. um, so anything that's kind of opened up in your own inquiries um, about literature. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my work generally kind of falls in the early 20th century, uh, late 19th, so kind of 1880s through 1950s, maybe 1960s. So that kind of chunk of time. Uh, and the reason that I explore literature uh, in that period is because in the late 19th century, we saw that kind of global commerce that I was talking about on uh, clipper ships or wooden boats that we like to associate with, you know, the age of sail and uh, novels like Moby Dick kind of is a great example of, you know, that age of sail romance uh, aboard the wooden boat. And in the late 19th century, you have a move away from those ships towards steamship use. So you start to see kind of conglomerations of wooden and steamship vessels. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, pretty much a complete shift over to steamship use for both. Um, moving people moving across the ocean and also moving goods across the ocean. So that was a huge shift in the, what we kind of call the maritime world. Um, because before you had people who were laboring at sea on these boats, you also had, you know, these seafaring communities as we called them, um, who are kind of built around that that commerce, that economy of the world. And you see just like wholesale shifts in those communities and in the way that people are, are thinking about uh, the role of the ocean in the world, because now it's a place of, you know, crossings that are basically anyone can go on a steamship and cross the ocean, or if, you know, depends on socioeconomic class, of course. Um, but you're just seeing complete changes in the way that people are interacting with the ocean and the sea, and also its role in commerce. Um, so I think I've always been really fascinated in that shift because, like I said, with uh, Alan Sekula, he's looking at kind of, you know, containerization and how that changes things again and people forget the sea even more. But you also see at the start of the century, this weird moment in which uh, a lot of people and families are still kind of entwined in that maritime past, but also seeing it fade away or die away uh, and kind of trying to grapple with that. And so, my work examines this kind of coastal literature that pops up that is thinking about the ocean through coastal settings and is not necessarily tied to the clipper ship or the romance or the age of sail, um, but is really kind of thinking about the ocean as a space that interacts with uh, its coasts and the ecologies of coasts. And, 
I think that what I find so fascinating about that time is, you know, there still are some big names that people associate with this change, uh, like Conrad, just Conrad uh, is writing about this shift from sail to steam and the changes of that. And even Melville, you could say, is trying to kind of regain this romance of the past while watching the clipper ships or the age of sail kind of die away. Um, but I'm really fascinated in how people were understanding that change from the coast, even if they weren't necessarily entwined with the commerce or entwined with, you know, that maritime past. So kind of like, you know, my experience reading children's literature about a local area, like who's writing children's literature like that, that's thinking about you know, the association with the sea through that area, or, you know, how are, how are new areas being opened up on the coast or redefined on the coast um, by people visiting those areas? So, for example, tourism became huge in the early 20th century, and we get a lot of new and very beautiful works that are thinking about coastal ecologies at that time, from that opening due to tourism, but also inseparable from the way that people are kind of able to visit those areas. So I just find it as a really fascinating time to think about how we, yeah, redefine our relationship with, like you said, this kind of place that is often seen as an alien space, the deep sea which now we're seeing things like Blue Planet, which are really exploring these deep sea realms. Um, but I kind of see a similar reimagining happening in the early 20th century because of a similar shift in how people are interacting with that space and writing about it and representing it and thinking about it. So that's kind of where my, my fascination has come from. But I also feel like you know, the wonder thing, wonderful thing about literary studies is that you discover something new every time you find a new book or cultural object or, you know, way of knowing epistemology. And so I think that even in researching and studying this, my thinking has changed so much and it will probably continue to change just the more that you read texts. And I think that's that's part of why, you know, I study in this field. I'm sure part of why you study in this field or a lot of literary scholars do, you know, and going on that journey of reading new literature or texts or objects, your thinking kind of changes as well. So I think that, you know, it's an important thing to kind of continue to explore and analyze. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think I, yeah, I love that point about kind of new things rising every time you discover something new or go back to an old text, mm -hmm. you know, I was for this um, interview, I was thinking about uh, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse yeah. and, you know, you plan on writing um, about that time passes section, which mm -hmm. is wonderful when the Ramses are not going to their, you know, vacation 
house um, because of the world wars that are happening and the house mm -hmm. starts to get kind of taken over by erosional or you know kind of natural processes and starts to wear down but then it's kind of saved um, by some um, a re the return of labor and maintenance and this mm -hmm. household um, worker um, kind of refurbishing it and um, and that brought me brought attention to to contemporary a contemporary issue in Scotland where the novel is is set where you know Scotland has the most kind of unequal land ownership distribution of anywhere in Europe mm -hmm. with all of these kind of rich non-resident landowners possessing vast amounts of mm -hmm. of land for hunting and vacation where the actual Scottish people you know it's too expensive they can't afford it um, so the literature can be really prophetic for you know, modern times while also speaking deeply to issues, um, of course, during its own composition. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, is there anywhere, anywhere maybe um, before we wrap this up, um, mm -hmm. any kind of specific um, chapters you maybe want to give your reader a preview of um, in your dissertation? Mm -hmm. um, any other specific moments of literature? Um, that stand out to you right now um, as being like a, a rich jumping off place to think about some of the issues we've brought up today? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, I mean, I'm thinking about what you just talked about. And so this is something that, again, has recently kind of, I don't know, controlled my think, not controlled my thinking, but I've been thinking about constantly that might not have been, you know, as much in how I was thinking about the dissertation, but will now is, yeah, the, that kind of property relations that you get and how that ties into environmental issues, but also how the literature even shapes how we, we think about, or, you know, imagine ecologies. So I'm thinking about Key West in Florida where, yeah, a huge tourist destination, um, tourists going in buying houses, again, like you said, with Scotland, like land ownership, it's usually not gonna be that affordable to live or stay in Key West because of that huge tourist attraction. And yet the economy kind of functions off of that consistent tourism. And part of trying to boost tourist attraction to areas like that is this kind of, uh, I don't know about propaganda, but I don't know, advertisement of the area as these crystal blue waters teeming with, you know, sea turtles. You see constantly in so many of these big tourist uh, areas, this reimagining of Treasure Island, of Stevenson's Treasure Island, and so many different big tourist places kind of drawing on the, the pirate adventure treasure story, not necessarily as the book actually is, but how it's been imagined or how it's been taken up in the cultural imaginary and then kind of reinscribed into the tourist economy in order to get people to go there. And so you have these images that are associated with the book, but not actually tied to what happens in the book. And, 
you know, wrapped up in that is then also you have these images of beautiful coral reefs, of teeming biodiversity, of sea turtles, and you have tourists coming and just from sunscreen that people are wearing into the water to swim over the coral reefs is destroying those coral reefs. So, you know, the image that you're getting and then what you're actually seeing are two very different things and also are so entwined because as people continue to kind of seek out these beautiful tropical looking areas, they're continuing to destroy them at the same time. And within that also are people who are trying to, you know, make a living and continue to live in an area that maybe their family has lived in for a very long time. So I think that that's, Florida is going to be something that I think continues to kind of fascinate me for a while to come. Um, also because it's going to be extremely prone to coastal erosion. Uh, in a later interview, I talk about with uh, one of the interviewees, mega cities like Miami are going to be very, very susceptible to coastal erosion in the future. And tourism, things like that are, are going to hinder how we approach or think about any possible solutions to erosion. So it's complex, but <laughs> that's kind of where I'm thinking of going into it. Wow. Yeah. I had never thought about the sort of corporate branding of the of the pirate mm -hmm. um, tradition as you know in its literary dimension and imagery um, as you know a kind of key um, attractive image or symbol mm -hmm. um, for for tourist purposes and uh, you know yeah that's everywhere there's there's these specific kind of imaginaries of the sea that um, are you know functioning even though they're they are either not extant or extant in very you know piracy still exists of course yeah. but it's very different now and it's not romanticized mm -hmm. the way that yes. <laughs> it, it is in the uh, in that industry so yeah there's just so much there and um yeah and i hope that yeah you can get into more of these issues through the the podcast but this just you know this was a wonderful conversation and opens up so much and i'm really excited for both where this podcast goes and of course um, in your own dissertation and work to kind of see this inquiry um, develop um, as I go through this program with you. Yes. Um, but yeah, is there any other um, kind of anything that we didn't cover that you would like to frame your podcast with for your listener today? I think we've covered everything and thank you for joining me and for asking me these questions that I can kind of give people an idea of what this project is and also, you know, for doing the important work that you do and environmental issues and, and, you know, having your perspective and your input, even on how I, you know, I think about these fields or these approaches is, I don't know, it's talking to people constantly shifts how you think about these things. So thank you for coming on and doing this with me. Yeah, similarly, this conversation has given me a lot. And yeah, and it's always such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm glad that we have a, this opportunity to think together. Yes, absolutely. Thank you.
Many thanks to the Belinsky Foundation and the Belinsky Fellowship at Bodega Bay Marine Lab for providing the funding that made this series possible.